Hello, and welcome to the reading of the Sioux City Journal for Friday, March 1st, 2024. I'm your reader, Catherine Moyers. The headline from today's paper is A Lifelong Educator Remembers. Basarich was Sioux City's first Black Teacher of the Year. Dateline Sioux City. Born in the East Texas town of Ennis, Virginia Basarich attended elementary school where the teachers were white and every student was black. It was only in fifth grade that she attended a school that was fully integrated. Times were different back then, Basarich, now 65, remembered. Raised in a family with seven other siblings, she knew that education would be the key to her future. Sure enough, Basarich would enjoy a 34-year career with the Sioux City Community School District. She spent the majority of her time, 22 years, as a 4th and 5th grade teacher at the former Emerson Elementary School. Retiring in 2018, Basarich ended her career after a decade-long stint as an alternative school educator where she worked with some of the district's most at-risk students. However, Basarich's proudest moment came in 1993 when she was selected Sioux City Teacher of the Year by the Joint Cabinet of the Sioux City Education Association and the Sioux City Community School District. I was the first black person to receive that honor, she said. I was so happy because I wanted to be a role model for children of color as well as a role model for my fellow teachers. Indeed, Basarich always wanted to be an educator. Even as a little girl who loved playing school with her friends, I was, inevitably, the teacher, she said with a smile. The teacher got to sit up in front, and that's where I always wanted to be. Graduating from East Texas State University in Commerce, Texas, Basarich moved to Sioux City after being offered a job as a substitute coach and teacher with the district. When I came to Sioux City, I was working in the high school, she said. After two years, a permanent position opened up at Emerson, and I took it. It was an elementary school teacher that Basarich found her passion. You go into a classroom with high expectations, a positive outlook, and flexibility, she said. If something's not working, you have to be able to change it. That's where being flexible came in handy. Equally as important was maintaining a sense of humor. You've got to have a sense of humor in order to understand kids, especially elementary school kids, Basarich said. It was Basarich's sense of humor, as well as a mutual love of sports, that caught the attention of Thomas Sarge Basarich, whom she would marry in 2003. Himself, a longtime Sioux City Community School District educator who worked with at-risk students and served as a coach on various school sports teams, Thomas Basarich befriended his future wife long before the two of them married. We were buddies first, Basarich said. Sarge and I didn't become husband and wife until years later. Personally, I work best with older kids, but Virginia has an uncanny knack with younger students, Thomas Basarge said of his wife. The bond that Virginia had with her students didn't stop at the end of the school year. To this day, she remains friends with students decades later. Now both retired as educators, Thomas and Virginia Basarich enjoy traveling and spending time with their extended families. That is, when Basarich isn't replenishing little free library boxes with educational books. You can't be a teacher if you don't have a big stockpile of books, she said. I have a few favorite where I drop off a book or two. 
Most of the book's besides favors are the ones which stress multiculturalism. Where you come from matters, she said. Whether you're black, Asian, Hispanic, or whatever, you should be represented. And yes, you can become a role model. The Sioux City School District is soon going to announce the 2024 Teacher of the Year. The next story is House Passes AEA Bill to Reorganize Special Education by Caleb McCullough, Dateline Des Moines. A proposal by Iowa House Republicans to reorganize the funding and oversight of Iowa's area education agencies was passed out of the chamber on Thursday, the first major milestone for the proposal as lawmakers have spent the last two months weighing major changes to the state's special education network. House Republicans proposed the bill after they blocked a more expansive and dramatic proposal from Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds, a Republican, that would have allowed school districts to spend their special education dollars outside the AEAs. The House Bill, House File 2612, would keep Iowa's AEAs as the sole provider of special education support in the state. State funding for special education services would go to the school districts, and they would be required to use that funding with the AEAs. School districts would receive their allocation for media services and other education services that are currently devoted to the AEAs, and they would be able to choose whether to use that money with the AEAs or with another party. The bill passed out of the House 5341 with only Republican votes. Nine Republicans joined Democrats in voting against the bill. House Education Committee Chair Schuyler Wheeler of Hull said he introduced the bill on the floor, that it was the product of countless hours of conversation with stakeholders. He said there is broad agreement that changes need to be made to the AEA system. One thing was true throughout all of this. Everybody agreed that there were areas to improve and that we could make changes, Wheeler said. The AEAs have been included in this conversation more than anybody. We've worked diligently, and I'm proud of the work we've done. Democrats say there is no need for changes to the AEA system and that the call for changes was based on faulty assumptions about poor test scores and performance of students with disabilities. Democrats said they supported the piece of the bill that calls for a task force to study the structure and services of the AEAs, but they did not want to make any changes before convening that study group. There's no reason for the rest of the bill, said Representative Sharon Steckman, Democrat of Mason City. The task force will do it for us. Then next year we can make an intelligent decision instead of a rushed one. In a statement after House lawmakers passed the bill, Reynolds said test scores and designation from the U.S. Department of Education show that the AEA system is failing Iowa students. The system must provide transparency and accountability to school districts, those closest to our students, and drive consistency across the AEA regions to improve services for students with disabilities, she said. That's why I've heard from over 100 school districts as I've traveled the state, and I look forward to more conversations as the legislation moves forward. I was nine AEAs, which are governmental agencies separate from the Department, Department of Education, provide special education support to school districts in their boundaries and assist with classroom equipment and media services, professional development, 
and talented and gifted instruction, among other services. Right now, the services are largely funded by property taxes and federal special education dollars. Beyond the funding changes, the bill would bring the AEAs under the Department of Education and create a new state Division of Special Education to oversee them. The division would handle oversight and federal and state compliance for educating students with disabilities. The bill would move the AEA's governing boards to an advisory capacity and require state approval of AEA budgets. The salary for AEA administrators would be capped at 125% of the average salary of all superintendents within the AEA's boundary. The bill would also establish a task force to study the AEAs led by the legislative leaders of both parties. The group would assess and make recommendations related to the property owned by the AEAs, the services they provide, the accountability and oversight measures in place, the organizational structure of special education in Iowa, and a timeline for staffing modifications at the AEA. Republicans amended the bill on the floor on Thursday that would bring back the option for school districts and AEAs to share staff like social workers and special education coordinators. The amendment also makes the number of field employees for the State Division of Special Education flexible, with up to 40 employees split between the nine AEAs. The division would hire 13 new employees based in Des Moines. The last story from the front page is titled, Iowa House Passes Bill to Arm School Staff After Perry High School Shooting, by Tom Barton, Dateline Des Moines. Iowa House Republicans passed a bill late Wednesday night after lengthy debate and vocal opposition by Democrats that would create a new permitting process for Iowa school districts to arm trained staff. House File 2586 passed on a party-line vote 61 to 34 at around 11 p.m., following nearly two hours of debate, with Democrats opposed. The bill now heads to the Iowa Senate for consideration. Iowa Code currently allows approved school staff to carry a gun on campus should they choose. Two districts in northwest Iowa put policies in place but rescinded them last year to avoid being dropped by their insurance carrier for liability coverage. This year's legislation looks to address insurers' concerns by putting in place a new permitting process that allows employees at Iowa's public and private schools and colleges to carry a firearm on school grounds during school hours. It would also provide qualified immunity and indemnify school districts from criminal or civil liability for all damages incurred pursuant to the application of reasonable force. There's no mention of insurance in the bill. House Republican lawmakers said their intent is to bring insurers back to the table and said they are confident the permitting, training, and indemnity provisions in the bill will alleviate insurers' concerns. School districts would not be required to arm staff. Rather, the bill provides requirements for those districts that choose to do so. This bill sets a very high standard because we are talking about the safety of our children, said Representative Phil Thompson, Republican of Boone, lead sponsor of the bill and chair of the House Public Safety Committee. The bar must be high. We recognize that this responsibility must be taken very seriously, Thompson said.
The strict training regimen outlined in this bill ensures that the employees who acquire this permit are equipped with the skills and proficiency to act appropriately in the event of an emergency. In order to receive a professional permit to carry weapons, employees would have to pass an annual background check and complete a firearm safety course, in addition to one-time legal training on issues like qualified immunity, as well as annual communication and emergency medical trainings approved by the Iowa Department of Public Safety plus quarterly live firearms training. The bill also would require school districts with at least 8,000 students, among them Sioux City, Cedar Rapids, Davenport, Council Bluffs, and Iowa City, to have at least one armed private security guard or school resource officer in each district high school. Districts could opt out of the requirement for having an armed security officer at a high school by a vote of the school board. Schools with fewer than 8,000 students would be encouraged but not required to employ school resource officers or security officers at high schools. The state would establish a school security personnel grant program fund that would match up to $50,000 for employing security personnel. Identities of school staff issued a weapons permit would be confidential and not subject to disclosure under Iowa's open records. I don't have a choice of knowing how many guns are around my second grader, House Minority Leader Jennifer Conferst, Democrat of Windsor Heights, said. I don't have a choice knowing whether Mrs. Kennedy or Mrs. Smith is the teacher I want if I don't want my kid's teacher to have a gun. Staff in the district will be allowed to carry concealed weapons during school hours. It would be up to districts to decide which firearms staff could carry and whether the district would provide those or allow use of personal firearms, Thompson said. The move comes in the wake of a shooting last month at Perry High School that killed 11-year-old Amir Jolliffe, a sixth grader, and Principal Dan Marburger. Six other people were injured in the shooting. The 17-year-old student who opened fire died of an apparent self-inflicted gunshot. Supporters of the bill said the fastest way to respond to a school shooting is to have armed personnel on site, trained and available to respond at a moment's notice. Parents, law enforcement, and school superintendents from rural communities, as well as gun rights activists, have said while school resource officers play an important role in Iowa schools, it is unrealistic to expect a single police officer is going to be at the right place at just the right time should tragedy strike. They noted the Perry Community School District employs a full-time school resource officer and said rural districts do not have the same access to nearby or fully staffed police or sheriff's departments as those in urban Iowa. People with bad intentions are going to do bad things. People with good intentions are there to stop them, said House Majority Leader Matt Winchell Schittle. Republican of Missouri Valley. Look at the data. Look at the statistics. Seconds count. Seconds save lives. House Democrats oppose arming teachers, citing risk to staff and students. Rather, they said, lawmakers should instead pursue an evidence-based intervention plan that addresses school violence, and they advocated for providing resources for mental health services. Most professional education organizations have rejected the call to arm teachers, as has the National Association of School Resource Officers 
and the American Bar Association. Opponents said an armed teacher is much more likely to shoot a student bystander or be shot by responding law enforcement than to be an effective solution to an active shooter in a school. If I'm carrying a gun and there's a threat to the door, the thing that stands between me and a threat is 26 kids that I would take a bullet for, said Representative Molly Buck, a teacher and Democrat from Ankeny. I could never live with myself if I put a bullet in one of them. Buck noted that she's been trained that if there's an armed intruder to safely evacuate students or shelter in place and barricade themselves if there's no safe way out. If I choose to be armed, what then is my role? Is my role to stay with my kids and keep them safe? Or does my role then become to go after an intruder? Bucks. Representative Beth Wessel, Croshall, Democrat of Ames, said insurance companies are hesitant to cover schools due to lack of data on staff safety. There is no data on what would happen if we armed staff in schools, she said. There are too many unknowns, and the risks are high. The risks are unsecured guns left in a restroom, locker room, unlocked desk drawer, and a young, curious student finding it and experiment. This bill puts more children in the line of fire, and nothing is more frightening. Representative J.D. Scholten, Democrat of Sioux City, said there have been more than 100 publicly reported incidents of mishandled guns at schools in the last five years, including a teacher accidentally firing a gun during a safety demonstration. Wessel Kroschel emphasized the need for more adults in schools rather than armed teachers to address safety concerns and prevent violence, including providing funding for schools to hire specialists to help students with homelessness, poverty, bullying, and more. I believe that every student in Iowa de- deserves to be safe in school, and I believe that every parent deserves to know their child is safe in school, said Weschel Kroschel. I want Iowa to make our students safe. Arming teachers does not get us there. Instead, Democrats urged Republican lawmakers to prioritize violence prevention, intervention, and sensible gun safety laws. The Republican solution to school safety is more guns, said Representative Lindsey James, Democrat of Dubuque. Iowans are crying out to us for common sense gun safety laws. Iowans want to see universal background checks and investment in safety infrastructure in our schools. The encouragement of safe storage awareness. They want to see legislation on extreme risk protection orders. They want to see an investment in mental health. These are the common sense gun safety solutions that Iowans want to see. Winchittle said House Republicans are moving forward separate bills to address mental health and to bolster school security infrastructure. This is a broad-spectrum approach. While it may not be all-encompassed in this one House file, we are working on multiple different aspects to provide the safety and protection and quality of education and the environment for our children to grow and prosper, he said. We can all work together on this, and we can provide the safety that our children deserve. Now we turn to page two, and this story titled, Pineda Makes Sure Journey Sound is Still Iconic by Bruce R. Miller. Two things have helped Journey reach the 50-year mark, Glee's heavy use of the band's music and Arnell Pineda's soaring lead vocals. Able to hit all those Steve Perry notes and give them his own spin, Pineda made Wednesday's concert at the Tyson Event Center seem like it was at least 
40 years earlier, and we were hearing the hits for the first time. Now, platinum-haired, the 56-year-old even spins to his jumps and gives lights and stone in love the kind of fresh take that made Don't Stop Believin' a highlight less than 15 minutes in. While Neil Schoen, the last original member of the group, dazzled with his guitar prowess, the band really needed someone like Pineda, who could help fans recall the best days. Too often, ever-changing bands fall short when it comes to replacing the lead singer, or they force original members who never sang to chime in. This 2007 choice, however, paid off big time. To mark the band's 50 years, Journey had an overture of sorts, plenty of video extras, and a red baby grand for Jonathan Cain. With Ask the Lonely and Dead or Alive, two oldies but goodies, the band showed how it could crank things up to 11 and give those shown high notes a place to live. Drummer Dean Castronova got a solo singing spot on Mother Father and challenged Pineda with his own higher-than-high notes. Piano and guitar solos, any way you want them, made the night complete. The only wrinkle in the Wednesday's fun, long lines outside the Tyson. They kept some from seeing the first songs. Opener Toto. Still strong instrumentally, the Grammy winners stretched with some vocals. Guitarist Steve Lukather was best at capturing the old sound and didn't hesitate to kindle more than a few memories. He served as the band's MC and had a fun riff with keyboardist Greg Fillingins, who offered a few chords from his time with Michael Jackson. Thriller? You bet. The set's musical highlight was a cover of With a Little Help from My Friends, which gave all seven band members ample opportunity to shine. To keep the momentum going, Toto followed it with an extended version of that record of the year, Rosanna, and Africa hits that reminded fans why the band was so huge decades ago. While some of Joseph Williams' vocals weren't quite swoon-worthy, they kept the performance going until the iconic cuts. Then, the 1980s weren't just a memory, they were back. Wednesday's concert also reminded us to get to the Tyson at least an hour early, just to make it through the metal detectors. With plenty of concessions, that shouldn't be such a big ask. Still, more metal detectors could speed things along. Now we'll turn to the column called My Pet World by Kathy M. Rosenthal. And this is called Challenges to Common Practices. Dear Kathy, I was appalled to read that you support spaying puppies as young as three months old to avoid accidental litters. That is not a good reason. Early spaying can hinder a female dog's healthy development. Preventing unwanted litters can be achieved by keeping intact female dogs away from intact males. I live with a large dog breeder who has two intact males who have not fathered any unexpected litters. This breeder separates males from females in heat in different parts of the home and yard. I do likewise. Similarly, I have managed my female dog through her heats using dog diapers. Now that she has completed her second heat, I plan to have her spayed, ensuring her body has benefited from optimal hormonal development. My vet agrees. Check out akc.org. Terry from Castle Rock, Washington. Dear Terry, 
Pediatric spaying and neutering, a practice that has gained significant traction over the past two decades, involves the surgical sterilization of puppies and kittens at a very young age, typically before they reach sexual maturity. This procedure has become commonplace. The the development of safe techniques and advancements in anesthesia have made pediatric spaying and neutering a viable option for pet owners. The procedure is also performed by highly trained veterinary surgeons. Contrary to common misconceptions, surgical complications for animals in this age group appear no more frequently than those sterilized at the traditional age of five to seven months. Furthermore, veterinarians trained to do these surgical procedures say they can often perform them more efficiently, resulting in shorter surgery times and reduced recovery periods for the animals. Numerous studies and papers support the safety and efficacy of pediatric spay-neuter, which has been supported by reputable organizations such as the American Veterinary Medical Association and the American Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. The question of whether pediatric spaying and neutering can stunt an animal's growth has been debated among veterinarians and researchers for many years. While there isn't conclusive evidence to to definitely state this, the American Kennel Club suggests dogs not be fixed until after sexual maturity and states that different breeds and different sized dogs mature at different ages, which means that early spay and neuter may not be bad for all dogs. I haven't seen any health issues or stunted growth from my 600, excuse me, 65 to 100 pound dogs who were all neutered at three months. Research has shown that pediatric spaying and neutering can also reduce the chances of certain types of cancer, especially when female dogs are spayed before their first heat cycle. In addressing your belief that people can easily prevent their dogs and cats from getting pregnant, I haven't seen evidence of that in my three decades of animal welfare work. Most dogs and cats get pregnant before the pet owner even realizes their pet is in heat. When male dogs get out of their houses and yards for a day, their owners aren't making the connection that their intact dog was looking for a female in heat. Ultimately, when to spay or neuter a dog or cat should be made in consultation with one's veterinarian. If the veterinarian recommends holding off for a particular reason, then that is between the pet owner and the veterinarian. However, many veterinary clinics and animal welfare organizations promote and provide pediatric spay-neuter services as part of their efforts to promote responsible pet ownership and control animal populations. It's a safe and effective solution for reducing unwanted litters and the euthanasia of healthy pets. And that column is by Kathy M. Rosenthal, and she's an author and pet expert. You can email her at kathy at petpundit.com. Please include your name, city, and state, and you can follow her at Kathy M. Rosenthal. And this column by Jan Blackstone, titled Typical Complaints from Clients About Exes. Over years of working with couples, both dating and no longer, there are some common complaints I hear every day. So I'm passing on a little good ex etiquette in the hopes that this will help everyone someday find their special someone. Quote, I recently met someone online and we are having quite a good conversation, but when talking about something, in every res- reference he brings up his ex-wife and he'd use her first name 
And then I said, Carolyn, your labor pains can't be five minutes apart. After about the fifth reference to Carolyn, I asked him how long he had been divorced. Well, he said jokingly, if she was here, I'd ask her because I really don't remember. I think it's about seven years, unquote. It's okay to occasionally refer to an ex. That's our frame of reference, particularly if you were dating or married for a long time. However, if you want to impress somebody new, your ex can't be your reference for everything, especially on the first date. Another thing I would like to caution first-time daters about, talking too much about your past. Mentioning the intimate details of why you broke up is not going to impress someone as much as talking about what you aspire to in the future. Talk about what you look forward to and how you want to build that with someone. First name basis birth stories are intimate stories meant for family and best friends, not dates. I was out on a date with someone when her ex called. She saw it was him on her caller ID and said, Ooh, it's my ex. I have to pick this up. There was a lot of honeys and sweeties and yes, you can borrow the car. And I figured if they were so close, why am I here? So I asked and she acted like it was no big deal. It made me feel stupid. But that, that's a red flag. Flip or cheeky behavior is not impressive, especially in a potential partner. I would use behavior like this as a reference for the future, similar to being cognizant of how someone treats their server in a restaurant. If they are arrogant and condescending, it could be an indicator of how they will eventually treat you. If they are kind and genuine, you have a keeper. You are listening to the reading of the Sioux City Journal for Friday, March 1st, 2024 on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. There are no obituaries, so we'll turn to sports next. The headline in today's sports page is Hawkeye star Clark to enter WNBA draft. Iowa star Caitlin Clark, who is on the verge of becoming the all-time NCAA scoring leader in college basketball, announced Thursday she will leave the Hawkeyes after this season and enter the WNBA draft. While this season is far from over and we have a lot more goals to achieve, it will be my last one at Iowa, Clark wrote on social media. Clark has become the focal K-point of women's basketball with her flashy play and three-point shot, often from the on-court logo. Many players would be benched for shooting from so far out, but Clark has the green light from her coach and has delivered while also finding her teammates and hitting the boards. The guard, with one more year of eligibility, became the all-time leading women's scorer in major college basketball by scoring 33 points to pass Lynette Woodard and post her 17th career triple-double in a 108-60 victory over Minnesota on Wednesday. In her announcement, she thanked her teammates, coaches, and the thousands of fans who have packed arenas across the country to watch her and the sixth-ranked Hawkeyes. Those fans were chanting, one more year, one more year, while Clark was being interviewed on the court Wednesday night. When she also broke the NCAA single-season record by sinking eight three-pointers for a total of 156, she has 3,650 career points. Woodard had 3,649 points for Kansas from 1977 to 81 before the NCAA sanctioned the sport. Earlier this month, Clark broke Kelsey Plum's NCAA scoring record, 3, 000, which was 3,527 points. 
Next up is the overall NCAA scoring record of Pete Maravich, who is just 17 points ahead of her. Clark is expected to be the top pick in the draft on April 15th. The Indiana Fever, who have the first pick, indicated on social media shortly after Clark's announcement that they intend to select her. We're just simply reminding you that there are only 46 days until the 2024 WNBA draft, the team posted after dropping a link to its game tickets and a conspicuous number one. Clark's final regular season home game at Iowa is likely to bring one of the priciest tickets in women's college basketball history. The cheapest ticket listed Thursday on TickPick.com for the Sunday game against number 2 Ohio State was $481. South Carolina, OSU, Stanford, and UCLA sit atop the bracket reveal. South Carolina, Ohio State, Stanford, and UCLA would be the number one seeds in the NCAA tournament if it began now. The NCAA Women's Basketball Selection Committee on Thursday did its second reveal of the teams in line for the top 16 seeds. A lot has changed in the two weeks since the initial unveiling, outside of South Carolina and Ohio State's dominance. Of the original top 16 seeds, 11 lost at least one game. That's a testament to where college basketball is right now. It's difficult night in and night out, the NCAA Women's Basketball Selection Committee Chair Lisa Peterson told the Associated Press in a phone interview Thursday. That hasn't always been the case. Peterson said South Carolina and Ohio State have had really strong seasons, and there was a lot of discussion of the final number two seeds. Stanford was a little more secure than the others because of their body of work, she said. They lost to Arizona, but Cameron Brink was out. The last number one had a lot of conversations considering the Virginia Tech has been playing so great right now. UCLA had such a tough schedule, and they have Lauren Betts back. Just outside the top four teams was Iowa, which is ranked number six in the AP poll. The Hawkeyes, last year's national runners-up, were once again projected as a number two seed. The top 16 seeds will host first and second round games, with the regional rounds being played at two neutral sites for the second straight year. Portland, Oregon will host half of the Sweet 16, and Albany, New York will host the other eight teams. Now we turn to golf. Ramey and Kim share early lead. Both shoot bogey-free 64s in opening round of Cognizant Classic. Dateline Palm Beach Gardens, Florida. Chad Ramey's first two trips to PGA National as a professional were largely forgettable. He might have a chance to change that this week. Ramey shot a bogey-free round of 7-under-64 on Thursday in the opening round of the Cognizant Classic in the Palm Beaches, tying S.H. Kim for the 18-hole lead. Kim had an eagle and five birdies, including one on the finishing hole, to pull into the tie atop the leaderboard. A group of five players, Cameron Young, Ryan Moore, Chesson Hadley, Austin Eckrode, and Andrew Novak, all played in the morning wave and finished one stroke back with six under rounds of 65. Also at 65, David Skins, who played in the afternoon and missed an 11-foot birdie putt on his final hole that would have given him a share of the lead. Ramey's first appearance in the event, then known as the Honda Classic, were quick and remarkable. 
He missed the cut at PGA National by 10 shots in 2022, missed it by just one stroke last year, and failed to shoot around in the 60s either time. But conditions were perfect when he teed off early Thursday, a course known to often having whipping winds, had barely a breeze for much of his round. I got a good break this morning with there not being any wind, Ramey said. I fully expect the rest of the week the wind to blow. I've never been here and it had, hasn't blown, but to take advantage of the calm conditions is definitely a plus. Added Rory McIlroy, the world's number two ranked player who shot a four under 67 in the morning wave. You're not going to get this course much easier. Ramey made a 27 foot birdie putt on the opening hole starting a stretch where he had five birdies in his opening seven holes, including on the 479-yard par-4 sixth, one of PGA National's tougher holes. From there, he mostly just stayed out of trouble. Only two of his 11 par putts were from outside of four feet. Hit it well, putted well, chipped in once, said Ramey, whose last first-round lead came last year at the Players' Championship. Very solid through the whole bag. Kim of South Korea holed out from 25 yards on the par 5 third to highlight his round. He holds a first-round lead for the first time in his 45 PGA Tour starts. Hadley was also also bogey-free, with six birdies on his card as he finished one shot back of Ramey and Kim. Now we'll turn to Major League Baseball notes. Dodgers Otani reveals he is married in social media post. Dateline, Tokyo. Shohai Otani has stunningly revealed he's married. Otani wrote on Thursday on Instagram in Japanese, The season is approaching, but I would like to announce to everyone that I have gotten married. He said his new wife was a Japanese woman without identifying her. He said he would reveal more in an interview presumably at the Los Angeles Dodgers spring training venue. The 29-year-old Otani is Japan's biggest celebrity, and there has always been curiosity around his personal life, which he has always kept very private. His focus and his image has always been 100% baseball-focused, free of scandals or tabloid news. Otani moved from the Angels to the Dodgers in December on a record-breaking contract worth $700 million over 10 years. I began a new chapter in my career with the Dodgers, but I also have started a new life with someone from my native country of Japan who is very special to me, he wrote. He asked the media refrain from conducting unauthorized interviews. The post on Instagram included a photo of his dog, Decopin, which is also called decoy. He wrote, We hope the two of us and one animal will work together. And briefly, draft pick matchup. Pittsburgh Pirates starter Paul Skeens retired the Baltimore Orioles' Jackson Holiday on a grounder to second base in a spring training matchup of the top overall picks in the last two amateur drafts. Skeens, a six foot six right hander, was the first pick last year after going thirteen and two with a one point six nine ERA and two hundred nine strikeouts while leading LSU to the NCAA title. Phillies Philadelphia scored its popular one dollar hot dog nights for the twenty twenty four season. The Phillies replaced dollar dogs on select dates with a two for one deal at two April games at Citizens Park. 
Citizens Bank Park. Blue Jays. Toronto reliever Eric Swanson's son, Toby, has been discharged from a Florida pediatric intensive care unit. The four-year-old boy was hit by a car Sunday in Clearwater and was airlifted in critical condition to Johns Hopkins All Children's Hospital in St. Petersburg. Swanson's wife, Madison, shared the update on her son's recovery in an Instagram story Wednesday night. Giants. San Francisco right-hander Tristan Beck was diagnosed with an aneurysm in the upper part of his pitching arm and is evaluating his treatment options after the condition was checked when he began experiencing numbness in his hand. Beck is projected starter for the Giants, but he could miss significant time. Rays. Catcher Francisco Mejia agreed to minor league contract with Tampa Bay. Mejia rejoins the Rays after being released by the Los Angeles Angels last week. Josh Lowe is dealing with hip inflammation and isn't expected to play in a game for the next 10 to 15 days. Uniforms. Baseball Players Association head Tony Clark is hopeful 2024 uniforms will soon be altered following complaints by his members. The uniforms, designed by Nike and manufactured by Fanatics, have been criticized by players for pants that are somewhat see-through and for lettering, sleeve emblems, and numbering that are less bulky and apparently smaller. And salary? Major League Baseball's average salary rose 7.1% last year to a record $4,525,719, according to the annual report of the Players Association issued Thursday. But several teams appear to be cutting payroll for 2024. Now we'll have the NBA Friday's games. Charlotte at Philadelphia, 6 p.m. Cleveland at Detroit at 6 p.m. Dallas at Boston at 6.30 p.m. Golden State at Toronto at 6.30 p.m. Indiana at New Orleans, 7 p.m. Portland at Memphis, 7 p.m. Sacramento at Minnesota at 7 p.m. Milwaukee at Chicago at 9 p.m. And Washington at the L.A. Clippers at 9.30 p.m. Saturday's games are Atlanta at Brooklyn at 2 p.m. Utah at Miami at 4 p.m. Portland at Memphis at 7 p.m., Denver at L.A. Lakers, 7.30 p.m., and Houston at Phoenix at 8 p.m. In National Hockey League, Friday's games are Arizona at Ottawa at 6 p.m., Philadelphia at Washington at 6 p.m., New Jersey at Anaheim at 9 p.m., and Saturday's games are Winnipeg at Carolina, 11.30 a.m., Florida at Detroit, 2 p.m., Edmonton at Seattle, 3 p.m., Colorado at Nashville at 5 p.m., Minnesota at St. Louis, 5 p.m., Montreal at Tampa Bay at 6 p.m., New York Rangers at Toronto at 6 p.m., Ottawa at Philadelphia at 6 p.m., Vegas at Buffalo, 6 p.m., Boston at New York Islanders, 6.30 p.m., Columbus at Chicago, 7 p.m., San Jose at Dallas at 7 p.m., and Pittsburgh at Calgary at 9 p.m. Stat of the day for the Rangers, 250. The Rangers' Artemi Panarin had two goals in Wednesday's victory over the Columbus Blue Jackets, including the 250th goal of his career. And the stat of the day for 
the NBA, 3-1. to one. The Lakers won their regular season series with the Clippers, 3-1, to one, after the Wednesday victory. LeBron James averaged 31.3 points in three games against the Clippers this season, and the Lakers' lone loss to their L.A. rivals came on January 23rd, when he was out of the lineup with an ankle injury. Another NBA story, story titled, Warriors Continue Road Success and Knock Off Knicks. Dateline, New York. Stephen Curry had 31 points and 11 rebounds, bouncing back from the scoreless first half in his last game with the double-double by the midpoint of this one. And the Golden State Warriors beat the New York Knicks 109-99, to excuse me, 110-99 to on Thursday night. Jonathan Kaminga added 25 points for the Warriors, who extended their road winning streak to seven games, their longest since winning 11 in a row in the 2018 and 19 season. The Warriors raced to a 14-0 lead and never trailed. They opened a series of sizable cushions, but the Knicks kept getting it back to a workable margin. Golden State wouldn't let them come all the way back and won for the 10th time in 12 games overall. Bucks 111, Hornets 99. Giannis Atencumpo had 24 points and 10 rebounds as Milwaukee swept the four-game season series with Charlotte, beating the host Hornets to finish a home and home set. Malik Beasley added 19 points and Bobby Portis had 14 points and 10 rebounds. The Bucks shot 16 of 39 from beyond the arc to give Coach Doc Rivers, his first four-game winning streak with the team. Suns 110, Rockets 105. Devin Booker scored 35 points. Kevin Durant added 24. And host Phoenix held off Houston to open a two-game series with Game 2 scheduled for Saturday night in Phoenix. Magic 115, Jazz 107. Jalen Suggs hit three three three-pointers in the final three minutes and finished with 15 points as host Orlando beat Utah. Paolo Bonchero, who missed two games due to the flu, had 29 points and nine rebounds for the Magic. Nets, 124, Hawks, 97. Cam Johnson scored a season-high 29 points, hitting a season-high seven three-pointers in 11 attempts to help host Brooklyn beat Atlanta to open a two-game series. Spurs, 132, Thunder, 118. Victor Wembanyama had 28 points and 12 rebounds. Devin Vassell also scored 28 points. And host San Antonio beat Oklahoma City to snap a five-game skid. Nuggets, 103. Heat, 97. Michael Porter Jr. had 30 points and 11 rebounds to lead the way as Denver defeated visiting Miami in a rematch of last year's NBA Finals. And... Lakers 134, Wizards 131 in overtime. Anthony Davis had 40 points and 15 rebounds, and LeBron James added 31 points as host Los Angeles defeated Washington in overtime. Now this story about the National Hockey League. Bruins halt three-game losing streak. Dateline, Boston. Mason Lahiri scored the winning goal on the power play with less than five minutes to play. Morgan Geeky had his first NHL hat trick, and the Boston Bruins snapped a three-game losing streak with a 5-4 win over the Vegas Golden Knights on Thursday. Lowry fired a one-timer from inside the 
right circle, and the Bruins held on after surrendering leads of 3-0 and 4-2. Jesper Boquist also scored for Boston, which won for just the second time in regulation in February, while David Pasternak had two assists to help complete a season sweep of the defending Stanley Cup champions. Hurricanes 4, Blue Jackets 2. Tuvo Teravanian scored the game's first goal less than a minute into the second period. Spencer Martin stopped 20 shots against his former team, and Carolina rolled at struggling Columbus. Islanders 5, Red Wings 3. Matthew Barzell had a tie-breaking goal with six minutes and two seconds left in the third period, and Brock Nelson scored twice, helping visiting New York and Detroit's visiting New York and Detroit's six-game winning streak. Sabres 3, Lightning 2 in overtime. Rasmus Dahlin scored a power play goal in overtime, and Buffalo rallied to win at Tampa Bay. Panthers 4, Canadiens 3, S.O. Sam Reinhardt scored twice as host Miami defeated Montreal. Reinhardt became the fourth player in Florida's franchise history to reach the 40-goal mark with his second-period tally. Maple Leafs 4, Coyotes 2. Austin Matthews scored his NHL-leading 53rd goal as host Toronto sent Arizona to its 14th straight loss. Stars 4, Jets 1. Stars rookie Logan Stankovan scored for the third time in his four NHL games. Joe Pavelski had a goal and an assist, and host Dallas took over the top spot in the Central Division. Predator 6, Wild 1. Roman Josie had a goal and two assists as host Nashville extended its winning streak to seven games by beating Minnesota. Avalanche 5, Blackhawks 0. Zach Paris had two goals and an assist as Colorado won at Chicago. Kraken won, Penguins zero. Oliver Bjorkstrand and Alex Wenberg each scored as host Seattle beat Pittsburgh. Kings five, Canucks one. Los Angeles scored three goals in the third period to pull away from Vancouver on the road. And the around the Capitals brace for deadline changes. Arlington, Virginia. Anthony Mantha had been traded before, just not like this. Three years ago, he joined the Washington Capitals from the Detroit Red Wings in a surprise deal completed minutes before the deadline. He was in the first season of a new contract and didn't yet have a daughter. No one will be stunned if Mantha is moved this time, and he's one of several Washington players in that category ahead of the March 8 NHL trade deadline. Mantha and fellow pending free agents Joel Edmondson and Max Pacioretty are the most likely candidates to go. Goaltender Charlie Lindgren and center Nick Dowd signed through next season at just over a million dollars each and could also fetch significant returns if McClellan chooses to trade either or both of them. And briefly, find the NHL issued $25,000 fines each to Buffalo Sabres coach Don Granado and Toronto Maple Leafs coach Sheldon Keefe for separate instances of unprofessional conduct directed at officials. And trade, the Toronto Maple Leafs acquired defenseman Ilya Lubishkin from the Anaheim Ducks in a three-team trade involving Carolina. 
Anaheim received Toronto's third-round pick in 2025 in the deal announced Thursday night, while Carolina gets Toronto's sixth-round pick in the 2024 draft. And that does it for today's reading of the Sioux City Journal for Friday, March 1st, 2024. I'm your reader, Catherine Moyers. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, anytime. Thanks for listening. People's Pharmacy Health Headlines. At high doses, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs like diclofenac, ibuprofen, or naproxen may increase the risk of kidney problems. The study that revealed this used de-identified medical records of more than 750,000 active-duty U.S. Army soldiers. Consequently, these were active young and middle-aged adults. During the time of the study, from 2011 through 2014, nearly 18% of these soldiers got a prescription for one to seven doses of an NSAID pain reliever in a month. Another 16% were prescribed more than seven doses in a month. Fewer than 1% of these people were subsequently diagnosed with acute or chronic kidney disease. Nevertheless, the rate of kidney trouble was about 20% higher among people who had received high-dose NSAIDs than among those who had taken none. The authors described the increased risk as modest, but statistically significant. Another class of drugs that can lead to kidney injury is proton pump inhibitors. A data mining initiative of the FDA's Adverse Event Reporting System analyzed kidney-related side effects among 43,000 people who took a drug such as esomeprazole, lansoprazole, or omeprazole. Approximately 8,000 people taking a histamine 2 blocker such as ranitidine or famotidine served as controls since they take these drugs for similar symptoms. The researchers found that 5.6% of people on PPIs alone had a kidney-related side effect, while only 0.7% of those on H2 blockers did. Chronic kidney disease was 28 times more likely, and acute kidney injury was four times more likely among people taking PPIs. While this analysis shows association, not causation, there are previous studies linking PPIs and kidney damage. There's growing concern about a mysterious infectious disease that has been spreading among the wild deer population for decades. Scientists call it CWD, or chronic wasting disease. Hunters refer to this condition as zombie deer disease. It can also affect elk and moose. 
The CDC reports that this infectious disease has spread to wildlife in 24 states and two Canadian provinces. CWD was first detected in Colorado among captive deer in the 1960s and in the wild deer population in the 1980s. It's now affecting deer in the Midwest, Southwest, and some parts of the East Coast. The disease appears to be caused by a prion infection reminiscent of mad cow disease. An infectious disease expert at the University of Minnesota has warned that hunters who eat contaminated deer meat may eventually develop the human equivalent of chronic wasting disease. Shoulder replacement surgery is becoming increasingly common. Now researchers writing in the BMJ say that patients should be warned that the risks are higher than originally thought. The investigators reviewed hospital and mortality records in the UK. When men between 50 and 59 have this type of shoulder surgery, one in four will need further surgery on that shoulder within five years. In addition, older people who underwent this kind of surgical procedure experienced high rates of serious adverse events. One in nine older women and one in five older men had an infection, major blood clot, heart attack or stroke, or died within three months. The authors of the study encouraged their colleagues to counsel patients about the risks as well as the benefits of this kind of surgery. Drug interactions are a serious hazard in hospitals and the community. If patients receive prescriptions for incompatible medications, they can experience severe side effects that may even be life-threatening. Electronic medical records are intended to warn prescribers and pharmacists about potentially dangerous interactions, but many do so indiscriminately. The result is something called alert fatigue. If clinicians receive too many warnings, they may not pay attention to the really important ones. A team at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital reviewed their alert system. They removed unnecessary alerts and provided additional information to the most important ones. After they finished, they tracked clinicians' reactions. Alert overrides dropped by 40%. One important change linked alerts to the patient's laboratory data, making them much more targeted. And that's the health news from the People's Pharmacy this week.